Welcome to the Unsuccess Podcast, a podcast where we talk about ministry and faith here in Portland, Oregon. I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. And today we're welcomed by uh, someone we've been excited to talk with for a while and honestly um, didn't know if he'd be willing to talk with us, but we're so stoked that he's here. Uh, John Mark Comer of uh, Bridgetown Church here in Portland. Yes, sir. Right on. Yes, sir. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, so wonderful to chat to you guys. You had me at the title of your podcast. Yeah. I was like, ooh, these guys are on to something. Let's yeah. let's talk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um we were we were kind of excited to talk with you. Josh read an article of uh yours years ago about growing smaller and we we both found it interesting the idea of of growing smaller and also trying to be a pastor when you I'm sure of uh not really a choice of your own um, happened to grow a decently sized church. Like, uh, how do you, um, how do you find ways to be a pastor when, uh, I don't, I don't know what the right words are, but your star is sort of rising. Like what, how, how do you make that kind of uh, um, situation work? How do you pastor people in, in that kind of a setting? Well, let, let's get there. Let's step back first, not to jump right into the deep end. But sure. John, Mark, can you give us a like a thirty thousand view foot view of like how you came to Portland and kind of the a, a super brief history, um, kind of a, of your life up until now? Yeah, so I'm uh, thirty nine, near in level four, born in eighty, grew up in the Bay Area of California. And my uh, dad uh, was a first-generation follower of Jesus, came to faith in the Jesus movement, was playing in a rock band in California, all that kind of trope, and ended up on staff, uh, got saved into a church and ended up on staff at Las Gatas Christian Church, which was a, a mega church before that was normal. So I don't know if this stat is true, and but the internet never lies, right, guys? Right, right um, totally. But I've read before... That in the 1970s, there were just 10 churches in the entire continental U.S. And again, I don't know if how reliable that stat is. If so, I grew up at one of those 10. So it's all I ever kind of knew, grew up in. And then my dad took a job, kind of very long story short, at a church up in suburban Portland in Beaverton in 1993. So I came up with him when I was 13. Our family moved up. And been in the area basically ever since. Left for a few years for school and played in a band myself, some of that kind of stuff. But basically been in the area for quite a, quite a few years. And then, long story short, my dad and I planted a church together 16, 17 years ago. So I was in my early 20s. He's 30 years older than me. He was in his early 50s. So I was too young to plant a church. He was too old. And we um, planted together. And it was, uh, it was a phenomenal experience, a gut-wrenching experience, a learning experience. It was so many different things at once. And yeah, that church grew really, really fast. And you know, by the time I hit about 30, I was leading the church at that point. It was very large. I was exhausted and had a little bit of an early midlife crisis about six years ago. And through a long series of events, ended up um, stepping down from leading that church. And we were kind of in a multi-site family churches model, no video. It was all live teaching and you know local elders and staff at each location, three and then four. And I was kind of overseeing um, all of them, teaching at two or three of them. 
and uh, teaching it two of them every single weekend, and it was just killing me for a long series of things. So five years ago, basically demoted myself. Not that I quit. I just kind of demoted myself. Each site or church went autonomous for all, I think, good, for the most part, healthy reasons. And uh, so Bridgetown Church that I'm leading now was originally a site of that suburban church, and we planted downtown about 10 years ago. So here I am. So I've been in the city for a while, been kind of working at this church, if, depending on when you start the date at, for 16 years. Sure. Tell yeah. us tell us some about uh, that that crash. I I find it I find it so interesting. Um, uh, stories of either uh, burnout or exhaustion or a crash or um, uh, in in my case, it's been. Uh, mental health related, but like I, I find those uh, um, those situations interesting. Like, did did other people notice it in you first, or did you um, did you notice it yourself? What like what happened there? Well, I'm sure that people, anybody within my sphere of influence noticed it because I was not a pleasant person at the time. I was angry and anxious and perfectionistic and exacting and not the kind of person you would want to work for or with, you know. And uh, at one point, I think we had 93 people on the payroll. And, Holy crap! You know, yeah, at that point, you become, you know, I mean, your staff is a church and you're you're less a pastor and more of a CEO, executive director of a nonprofit management HR consultant, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for, which is weird because every, you know, not every, but a lot of pastors want a big church. I did. I had that desire. Much yeah. of it was rooted in ego and ambition yeah. and vanity. Some of it was rooted in um, some decent desires, maybe. But um, yeah, once I actually got it's like the dog chasing the garbage truck. You know, what would it do if it got it? <laughs> like, oh, wow, now I'm a megachurch pastor and it's killing me. So, yeah, there, there are multiple levels. There was the emotional kind of just burnout, exhaustion, stress, you know, which some of that can be mitigated through a radical change of lifestyle, sabbatical, restructuring the staff of your church. So that it was a lot more than that. But that was a legitimate thing. It was an emotional kind of burnout moment for me where I just could not go on. And I, what I used to love, I was now hating day after day. There was um, a bit of an identity kind of crisis in a healthy way of me learning the hard way that I'm an introverted teacher, not an extroverted apostle, you know? And if I don't know if you guys use that language of Ephesians yeah. 4.11, an apostle, evangelist, prophet, pastor, teacher. But I think there's if, if a church does well, if it grows, the, the natural momentum is to push the lead leader or leaders up toward like an apostolic yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. And, and, th and then that gets quickly co-opted by the American kind of franchise branding expansion thing, you know, which is so you could say corrupted the church or you could say amplified the church, depending on your opinion on that. Um, and I had to just learn the hard way. I'm not an apostle. I'm not, I don't want to be a leader of leader of leader of leaders, you know? I, I like thought leadership, but I'm, I'm not great at people leadership. You know, I'm okay I need to be present and thoughtful and as Christ-like as I can at this point in my journey, but I'm not a natural manager, people leader. You know, you don't want to... I'm not. I'm never the guy that people will be like, "Oh, working for him, he was like a second father to me." And he read, like, I'm just not that guy. And um, I want to be alone in my library and read and pray and offer spiritual direction for people and, you know, think about things. That's that's more kind of how I'm wired. So it was a real like 
learning moment as far as identity crisis and and learning the hard way that I have limits, you know, and you grow up in a church, in a church, not church culture, in a culture. And if you're middle class and white, like I am, you're kind of raised to believe you can do anything you set your mind to. And I'm kind of grateful for that from my parents and my father still blessed me. But, you know, the hard truth is you can't do anything you set your mind to. And all of us have limits and all of us, we dealing at some point and an upper feeling and then all of a sudden I just felt like I hit my ceiling like oh this is beyond me I can't do this you know other people could I can't so you know there was an identity thing there that was really hard and in hindsight I just it was so freeing and liberating but at the time it just felt humiliating and I felt like failure felt embarrassment and then there was a much deeper spiritual crisis of like an ecclesiological crisis of kind of coming to realize a whole new paradigm around spiritual formation and realizing I was not the church model that I was in and the way that I was following Jesus was not resulting in a high level of transformation into Christ likeness for me or many of the people that I was leading. Shocker, those two things are tied together. And so <laughs> that brought me into a massive existential kind of what is church? What is discipleship? How do people change? How do I change? Because I was no longer moving forward toward becoming a person of love. If anything, I was becoming less loving year over year as the stress compounded into my body. Wow. So we're, man, so good. Um, we're kind of a product of this, or we're living in the aftermath, at least, of the, like this big church growth movement and, and boom, you know, the... Um, may probably started at the 70s and 80s and into the 90s and um and you you did that you know like you you were you were a mega church pastor um i've never experienced that i've i've always my experience has always been small church um and one of the rubs it's it's interesting as a small church like i i remember going to conference after conference after conference um you know, and being much younger, of course, but like our church was supposed to look like your church. Right. Um, and it's so tragic. Yeah. And it just, it just killed, killed us. And what, what happened for me, and this is a lot of undoing that I've had to do. Um, but like it caused a lot of bitterness for me, yeah. you know? And so, you know, here you are and I, I, um, here's a, a um, confession. Um, I went to Solid Rock one time, like probably 15 years ago or something. Oh wow! Um, okay. And and so I'm I'm pastoring this small you know church in in Nopo, and you know here you are you know the the hip cool sexy church in Portland you know, <laughs> um, and you've got a cooler face. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I agree with any of those statements. I think. <laughs> It's perception. It's just all perception. Everything, the, the, the grown-up homeschooler in Beaverton is maybe a little bit more Wait, accurate. Uh, you were homeschooled? Oh, man, I don't want to talk about it. I was homeschooled, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, Keep going. Sorry. But, uh, um, yeah, so, so growing up in that, kind of becoming bitter about that and having to kind of work through that, but coming to this, this place um, of of unsuccess too, of like uh, getting to that and really believing that. And I, I haven't, my journey's not 
yours where like you had, you've arrived and then you have this kind of this undoing and you're like, wow, there's something more than the American dream that we're chasing after, you know, like the, the mega church is not the answer. And, and you know, yes. it, it works for some people, you know, but it, it's not the end all be all that we all should be. Um, and, and so in this kind of deconstruction of, for me, the, the article that, that I read, and I think I, I, I yelled at you at Twitter at one point, you know, but you, you were just, it was, it was a message and you were just getting ready to go to sabbatical, but it was 2014 with the leadership journal interview that they did with you on the franchise ministry. And so Mm. it's like right after all this kind of undoing, um, that you'd experienced and, um, you know, the, with the, the Jesus church and, and kind of the, oh, the, the autonomy, the autonomy yeah. that, that was kind yeah. of resulting. Yeah, so we were kind of disbanding as a church. Yeah. yeah, and and so you were all in, you were right in the mix of that. Um, and it just struck me big time because I'm like, oh, this is what, this is what I felt. And so to see it modeled out in you, it's like, oh, that here is this, there is this greater, deeper truth in what I had been told for 20 years of my life is is unraveling you know and yes. um and it was around that time too where i preached a sermon on first kings chapter 18 and 19 with elijah and i equated elijah's experience at mount carmel with this mega church movement you know here he he saw god show up big time like i huge the crowds I mean, and then so much that like 400 prophets were of Baal were killed that day. All of Israel knew that God was God. But the next day, the next day, Elijah is running away for his life in chapter yeah. 19. And, and to compare that, like, wow, we, we chase after something. And, and a lot of it, that ambition and that ego that you identified, um, mm-hmm. And ambition isn't wrong, and that's why I like uh, that there is good ambition, and I'm 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 still kind of trying to kind of reconcile that in my head and, and figure out what that means. Um, and so, what is now? I guess where you are now, kind of going through that, living through that. How do you uh, how do you pastor on the other side of that? Maybe um, you know, or how how is that impacted? You know how you because you you still have a huge platform like uh, you still have a large church you're still definitely um, kind of have this celebrity status um, you know on on a on a certain level um, I talked to a, a church planner actually in North Portland um, or who's helping out with the church plant and said why did you come to Portland he goes oh man because I heard John Mark at, at a, a seminar or a workshop somewhere in the Midwest one time and. Um, and so that, that influence is vast for sure. Um, and so how do you, uh, yeah, what, what is ministry like, um, knowing that kind of you, you, you'd had that Mount Carmel experience and realized, yeah, man, it's not it. It's really interesting you reference Elijah, too, because I've come back to that story so many times on so many levels. You know, his story of burnout and how it, spiritual crisis, and then even God's gentle question to him once yeah. God finally appears to him, what are you doing here? Yeah. Which which I read, and, you know, God says that twice in 1 Kings 19. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And it's, you know, it just feels like this gentle nudge from God and kind of invitation for him to explore his motivations mm. and that what's under the surface. And then what comes to the surface is ignorance, arrogance, jealousy, ambition, like all this stuff comes up to the surface of why he was doing what he was doing. And it wasn't from a, a, a posture of the easy yoke, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so I've come back to that story so many times and just felt a deep resonance with my own autobiography with that, you know, my own story with that. You know, I think, first off, I think it's really tragic that you would define your ministry leading a small church as unsuccessful and mine as successful just by virtue of the fact that there's more people at right. my church, you know? And that's the fact that, that we would naturally think that way, feel that yeah. way, define success the way. There's no indictment on you. That's just the cultural right. water, I, or you know, or even indictment on me. But that's the cultural waters we swim in. And 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 where do you, what kind of metric system for success do you have to come up with to where you conclude small churches are yeah. unsuccessful, large churches are successful? I mean, that you have to have some seriously non-kingdom metrics for what is success and what is failure. You know, I've I've. I think that word, and it's getting kind of into some history here with that the word, but that word success, and I've gotten a lot of pushback, exactly what you said, of like, no, we just need to redefine success. And uh, Oh, yeah, that's not pushback. I love the title of your yeah. podcast. I and, mean, it's sad that people feel that way. Yeah, but I, I want to throw success out altogether. I don't want to be a successful church, even as a small church or a large I. Like that, I, I think that's still feeding into that system. And I um, I think it's just with the baggage that that word has, has yes, has, uh, it has accumulated, you know? And so we yes. can try to like redeem it or we can find a new word. I, well, I mean, I think the idea, so the idea is not bad at all. And the word success is even used in the Bible. I think of Joshua chapter one, that you would be successful. I think all, all that it means is just that you would live well, that you sure, would flourish sure. and thrive, that you'd hear, you know, in Christian language, well done, good and faithful yeah, yeah. servant. So the problem isn't, I mean, I agree with you. I think the English word is, is I'm not sure that it's possible to recapture it in a church kind of context. But um, so it's like probably better on just to, to move on to other language. But the idea is not the problem. The problem is the metrics yeah. for success. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I used to say that the, the mega metrics are, I, I called it the four B's. And I, you know, this was my cynical era that I, I feel like I'm getting free from. But this is a very cynical way of saying that. I don't want to. And when, and when I talk about mega, there's two different things that people mean by a mega church. One is just a size of church that's mm -hmm. either 2,000 or 2,500 people, depending on, on who you talk to. It just, you know, it's a church of certain size. I honestly have no issue with that, or less and less and less of an issue with that. The other way that people mean mega is a way of doing church. Mm. One, um, I forget who it was, one thinker, you know, a number of years ago defined mega by three categorizations. One, it's personality centric, meaning it's all about yeah, the pastor. Yeah or worship leader or whatever. Two, it's Sunday-centric. People ask about your church. They talk about the Sunday gathering. And three, I think he called it consumer-oriented programming, which was a cynical way of saying young moms group and youth middle school yeah. group and young professionals group, meaning we put like attracts like, we put people together less based on stage of life and discipleship and a little bit more based on just people having their needs met. Again, not all bad, you know. And the funny thing about by that definition, you can be. I know a lot of two hundred person mega churches. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, where it's all about the pastor. It's personality driven. It's all about the pastor. It's Sunday centric. Tell them about your church. They talk about the Sunday experience, consumer oriented programming. I go because I like this, da, 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 da. So in that sense, mega church is a much deeper infection in Western culture and Western church overall. That's the, that's the definition of mega, whether the church is 200 or 20,000 that I more and more take issue with. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I was leading the mega, I, I, w- I would joke that the, the mega church metrics were the four Bs. Uh, what, what did I say? Um, butts, budget, buildings, and buzz. So butts, <laughs> how many people are there? What's your attendance? You know, budget, how much money are they giving? Building, what's your real estate scenario? Or do you have a cool venue? Or are you in a cool part of town or whatever? And then buzz, which, you know, that one's a little harder to measure, you know, retweets or whatever. But is there like momentum? Is the church planter word? Is it growing? Is there buzz? Are people talking about it? And, you know, at least three of those four, if not all four, are are nice metrics because you can literally get them in an email. You know, I can't get, if your metrics are Galatians chapter five and the fruit of the spirit, I can't get that in an email every Monday morning or in a quarterly report. Like here's how our, is our church has grown by patience in 17.3% this quarter. You know, like you can't, you can't measure. I mean, not that you can't measure it, but you can't measure it in the same way. And it's long-term and it might take a decade to grow somebody into this virtue, not a few weeks, you know? And, um, and so those metrics, you know, uh, butts, budgets, buildings, buzz, man, those are not metrics for success. You can have all of that and be a radical failure in the eyes of Jesus. You can have all of that and make it into the list in Revelation chapter two and three of, you know, you've gone cold or you've comp- I mean, often churches get there. So, you know, and that's the weird thing. Some churches grow large through like a genuine anointing on some of the leaders that God's raised somebody up as a prophetic voice or a teacher, or because there's a genuine move of God, or because thousands of people are coming to faith, or because that suburb is growing by tens of yeah, thousands yeah, of people yeah. every year. And like there are like legitimate good reasons that churches grow very large that I have no issue with. Right. But some churches get large because like they're watering down the gospel. They're making church short, palatable, easy. It's feel-good spirituality in a cultural Christian context, and they're letting you compromise and not feel guilty about it. So, you know what I mean? Just because a church is large, you can have, you can meet, you can have lots of butts, budgets, buildings, buzz, and still be a failure before God. And you can have not much, you can, you know, score very low on all four of those and be a raging success before God. Yeah. And um, and so, man, I, I think the less, I don't really have much of an issue with the word success personally, although I agree it's probably beyond saving. But I think we just have to redefine what those metrics of success are. Right. Yeah, I, I think of when you say all that, I think of uh, Maxine at our church. We So we've, in the time I've been there, shrunk from 100 to 50. Like, we're, we're, I'm doing good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but in that time, I've seen, like, Maxine, who used to attend church, and that was pretty much it, to she is, like, calling on everyone who's sick, writing notes all the time, and, like, checking up on these things, which didn't used to do that. I Like, um, uh, we've got people who are gung-ho on this, like, uh, homeless village project that we're doing who would have never done that five years mm-hmm. ago. And I'm yeah. like we look like crap on paper compared mm-hmm. to what we were um, years ago, but um, there is some serious, serious growth that I'm seeing in our people. And 
Wow. That's that's hard. And and the funny thing about it is, um, me as a as a person, I still uh, sometimes walk home from church in a deep depression because ah. we've still only got um, you know the people there who are there, and that's yeah that it's it's. It hurts because it hurts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, these these things shouldn't bother me because I'm like, we are doing kingdom work here, and, and I'm just depressed because we're not. Yes. But hold it. But you're holding yourself up against this, against, you know, defining success as somebody else's success. Yeah. And that's what kills you. And what people don't realize is that feeling doesn't go away once you have thousands of people. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? So if you're in St. John's and you're looking at, you know, our church 10 years ago and, oh, wow, they have, you know, X number of people on a Sunday or whatever. What you forget is I'm not looking at smaller churches going, oh, we're so much better. You know what I mean? That's not even on my radar. I'm looking at churches that are either bigger than us or have a a more ambitious model. Like, you know, at the time, Mars Hill, before that had imploded, you're like, oh, wow, that's a whole thing. And all these churches are going multi-side and Brandon, da-da-da. Or I'm looking at, like, the cool urban churches, actually, which is like, oh, man, I wish we were actually smaller and just hipper and cooler, and I'm stuck out here in Beaverton (laughs) or whatever it it is, you know, like, in all honesty. And so the funny thing is, like, success, in my experience, in the, the American metrics of success, it feels emotionally, the inner dynamics of it feel just like money. Like, you know, the, the, the old adage about money, the more you get, the more you want. Yep, yep. The John D. Rockefeller line, how much money is enough, you know, richest man in the world said just a little bit more. And all of us feel that way. You've been done yeah. in all sorts of sociological studies. Everybody wants about 20% more than they have now. And that feeling never really goes money you make. So it's not like, you know, you make 50 grand a year and you just want 20% more. You want 60 grand. It's not like you get 60 grand and then you're content. You get 60 grand and then you want 72. You get 72 and at that point my math skills break down. You want whatever is 20% after that. But that's that's how success feels, I think. The, it's like the carrot on the stick. The line keeps moving. You get to one thing and you you knock it out and you just look at the and you look at the next. And so it never ends unless yeah. if you radically redefine success. So it's just such a tragedy that somebody would walk home from an incarnational neighborhood-based church in St. John's, beautiful in the eyes of God. I mean, I don't know your community, but I'm hopefully beautiful in the eyes of God, and feel like a failure because somewhere else there's X thousands of people showing up. It's just, and and again, I went through like a kind of anti-mega church disenfranchisement de- deconstruction stage. I think all of us have to go through it at yeah. some point. Or out a bunch of my crap, unfortunately, in public, and for that I feel really bad about. And I said some things, and not like horrible things, but wish I was more gracious and empathetic and generous. But I think now I have less and less of an issue with the megachurch. I more just think, and I think it plays a role. I like Keller's language of a gospel ecosystem in a city, that in each city there's like multiple size churches and types of churches and yeah. traditions of churches yeah. and nonprofits yeah. and they all work together neighborhood church and mega church and house church and network and non-network and this generation and that generation anabaptist and catholic and yeah. protestant and like all these things work together and nonprofits doing this and alpha and, and it's this gospel ecosystem the problem is often in pastoral culture and the pastor conference world or online we just celebrate the 
this very narrow mm-hmm. slice of the gospel ecosystem that is the large church, the growing church, the whatever. And and the problem is we need to celebrate house church movements. We need to celebrate neighborhood churches. We need to celebrate, you know, different traditions. We just we need a broader range and broader vision of what success looks like, I think, for churches. We we don't yeah, I, I I think we are the we are a product of this worldview that that we're just born into, and I, I think you know this American dream, and um, there's so much there that that we've inherited and we've tried to kind of Christi, Christianize, um, and so that's I, I think it goes way beyond just the the church, and there's this whole I agree, yeah, the, this whole kind of want, wanting more, um, but I I think I think a big piece of that I, I like that ecosystem um but we we don't like to work together um it gives we give up control and so mm. um we we have a a hard time with that and i as in general with as uh, i think it's a human condition um and there's something there is something beautiful there and i i think the key becomes relationships um, yes where when like it, it's an honor to be able to like to work together, you and I and and David and others in this city together. You mm-hmm. know, like we have a common goal, and we're not that far off. You know, it's yeah, it's one thing. Like it, in the bigger sense, you know, we're definitely we're teammates with those in the Midwest, but it's harder to, um, you know, to feel connected with them. But you have in the city, there is a movement that's happening. We're part yep. of a, a nonprofit group called All One um, Community Services, and it our mission is to bring the church in North Portland together. Um, hmm. North Portland has, I don't, if we're really generous, about eighty churches. Okay, and and there's one large church. It's um, an African American church, but that's it. All the other yeah. ones are like under a hundred, and so there's no wow. there's no huge church like this suburban. Interesting. Field. So one large African American church, and every other church is under a hundred. Yeah. That's yes, fascinating. Every, and and so we um what but what has happened is there's been this c- camaraderie that's that's happened that that we've come together, um and the pastors here like we are tight, and we. Mm-hmm. Wow. We we know, but it's I think it's come out of necessity more than mission. Yes. Um the the mission has is there for sure and we're part of that, but it's like we're drowning, you know, and yeah. and, and let's band together and yeah. you know at the very least we're going to drown together, you know, if all <laughs> else fails. Um, Hopefully not. Let's have some more <laughs> more hope, yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been in St. John's for 36 years, so. Well, um, no, I mean, you, you said yourself, like, it, it started with the idea, we don't all need a food pantry. Right. And, and that's, that's still that sort of thinking of, we need to be the hub, the place where everyone comes for all the needs. No, no, we don't. Like, what if we all work together as the church? Being able to celebrate that. Yeah. So, Using that word "success" again, being able to celebrate the successes of of others, yeah, um, yeah. it's really and hard. There is there is something about the context of a city like Portland, you know, because I feel 
So if I was more extroverted, I'd be I'd be more into it. But I feel so connected to other pastors in this city. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. such I feel almost no competition. Right. You know, just a sense <sighs> of like gratitude and you know. Um, and I just wish I had more time and more more hours in my day to a certain extent to spend more time with you know other local pastors. Genuinely, and I think there might just be something about being in a post-Christian context or really hard city where it's just so incredibly hard to do church and to lead that just draws you together in solidarity. And then also there's pretty much no cultural Christianity left in the city. It's pretty much all burned up. All that cultural, you know, pressure is against church and discipleship to Jesus and even orthodoxy. So I I feel like it it burns up some of that. And what's left is not like consumer Christians going around to which church they like the most. That that exists everywhere because it's in all of us. It's in me. It's in you. It's it's a part of being us. But I think what's left is a more rigorous pursuit of discipleship that um, it really does breed some beautiful unity in the church. I mean, I know more healthy churches in this city than any other city that I know of. And this is like one study just said we're the least religious city in America, you know? So, like, I, I wonder what the, what, you know, the time, and I don't think those things are co- coincidental. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it's, it's funny because, uh, I mean, we've talked about this, but um, uh, I've seen God doing, I, I went to seminary in the middle of the Bible Belt, and so I, like, I was I was part of uh, churches helping and leading churches there that shared parking lots with other churches. You know, there there were wow. churches freaking everywhere, and every church is huge. <laughs> and I like can honestly say I've seen God doing more here mm. than I've seen anywhere. Like you, you're the people who are people of faith here mean it and they mean it to their core um yeah and like I, I and like you said there's there's consumer christians everywhere but but like god is god is doing some crazy things here in our community yes. and our community of uh little tiny dying churches and uh so, yeah so it's really really neat to see and 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 I don't mean that as any kind of slam on you know Midwest Bible no. Belt where there is still more cultural Christianity. As a parent, I kind of wish I lived in that, you know, because yeah. the downside to Port- uh, Portland is because there's so few followers of Jesus here. The culture has so overwhelmingly moved away from Jesus' vision of human flourishing that I mean, you're attempting to raise kids and do life in a culture that is increasingly not only really far from the way of Jesus, but like at odds and hostile to the way of Jesus yeah. in yeah. some areas. So man, there are just, it's exhausting as a parent, as a human being, you know, I'm just living here and trying to like not deconstruct my faith feels like a yeah, daily right. battle sometimes, you know, like the spiritual pressure in this city is so immense. So mm. that's not to romanticize it at all. It is just to say, I think one of the positive byproducts of that is what's left. And this is the, and this is the church under persecution. You know, it tends to shrink, at least at yeah. first, but then what's left is purified and often then grows, you know? And so I think, 
you know, there's lots of key cities and places to be in the U.S. right now. But I do think that Portland is one of them because Portland, San Francisco, L.A., you know, some of these Seattle, really secular cities, we're attempting to determine what does what does a successful again doesn't mean necessarily yeah. large, but church look like, and how how do you be successful or whatever language you want to use? How do we flourish, thrive, whatever? in this kind of a cultural climate. And that's, I don't have the answer to that, but I feel like our church is an attempt to ask that question yeah. um, every, every single day. And even if we get it wrong, if we could pass on some wisdom to the next generation, to my sons and my daughter, you know, that, that will likely be a job well done. Yeah. Yep. I've been preaching through Revelation this year. It came from not... Uh, oh, not, it's bold. I'm, I know. I'm, yeah, I'm it came... Kind of jealous and mostly just intimidated. Part of it, Part of it, I think, was a little bit of ego. I just wanted to see if I could do it. But it was more <laughs> like we just had so much... I, I noticed so much fear in our church, like cultural fear and whatnot. And, you know, the book is a book of hope at the end. But I didn't realize how much, like, um, God had to say to me this year. And I, like just the messages keep coming back like stay strong things are going to get things are going to get wild um but stay strong and stay faithful and stay obedient through it all and um yeah you're, you're talking about making mistakes and you know that's that's gonna happen but obedience and faithfulness uh mm. is is what we're called to and and whether we do it right in quotes is i mean i think beyond the point we're just called to be faithful in the midst of uh yeah. opposition throughout and so it's like god's had something for me this whole year yeah i love that i mean definitely one of the things you have to learn as a pastor if not the hard way is just that we're not actually in control of people like we think we are. And we're not in control. And, and when we attempt to be in control of people, we end up just yeah. slipping into coercive and manipulative, dominating leadership. And, you know, the reality is we, um, we can barely control ourselves, much less other people. <laughs> right. You know, I, don't, I can't even control my own mouth half the time. I just say things. I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? But I, I think that, you know, you have to faithfulness matters and so does fruitfulness but fruitfulness in other people in particular is so much of it's out of our we just have to be faithful show up I mean, that's where the parable of the sower just gives me such overwhelmingly hope as a pastor and as a teacher you know what i mean because yeah. the sower doesn't seem incredibly stressed out about the low yield that he's getting off of his crop you know and um, that's not to, to be nonchalant around serious things about whether or not people bear fruit. But I do think there's, there's a posture you have to get to where you show up, you do your job before God, and then you abandon outcomes. Not because you don't care about what happens or care if it's successful or fruitful or not, but because you're just not in control, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you look at Jeremiah, who basically, you could say his ministry was a colossal failure. Nobody <laughs> listened to him. They did basically the opposite yep. of everything he told them to do by God. And in the end, he just had this hard life. And you're like, but was he a failure? You know, is he, is he, are we going to stand with him at resurrection and be like, oh, there's the failure Jeremiah, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, Rick Warren's next to him and, and he did much better or whoever, you know, whatever the thing is. I don't think so. I just think that was, it. that was his journey. And all of us have a different journey, you know, and, and that's not to negate the sadness of a Jeremiah-like kind of ministry. That's, that's a hard, sad thing. 
And I don't want to like speak cavalier about that. I've not had that experience. And so I can imagine it be be really gut-wrenching. But I do think that we need to, as you're saying, just really emphasize faithfulness is in and of itself a kind of success. And we just have to release outcomes to God and to people. That's just beyond us. Oh, that's you know? so good. That's so good. Um, well, we have about five minutes left with you. I know you had a book come out about two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yes, sir. Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about that? You know, yeah, actually, the book actually starts with telling a little bit of the story of burnout and, you know, crisis and, and a little bit of an ecclesiological crisis, like what in the world is church and what is all this about? And um, it's called the book's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's based around a little story that I came across in that time period from Dallas Willard, philosopher at University of Southern California, teacher of the way of Jesus, basically the greatest literary influence on my life yeah, outside of the testament yeah incredible thinker his books the spirit of the disciplines is really what our entire church is kind of built around that theory of change and um then he had a conversation with john ortberg who's a pastor i kind of i realize i wouldn't quite call him a mentor but john and i get together on a semi-regular basis a couple times a year have lunch together and John was kind enough to write the foreword for this book. And basically, in this conversation, when when Orberg, back in the late 90s at Willow Creek Community Church, which is ironic, because after I wrote the book, the scandal hit with Bill yeah. Hybels of that. Um, Orberg was just getting sucked into the busyness and hurry and overload of mega church life, or maybe it's just church life. I'm, I don't even know if it's a mega church thing. It could just be a Western culture thing. And called up Willard and basically said, what do I need to do? And, and Willard was quiet and then called Hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, which that alone is a fascinating thesis to sit with. Very yeah. few of us would say that's the great challenge to the church right now. Very few of us would say that. And then he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate Hurry from your life. And that, um, that concept, of hurry as the great threat, you know, I mean, again, we're in like one of the most post-Christian cities yeah. in the country, you know? And if you were to ask me like, what's the great challenge to following Jesus in Portland and leading a church? I don't know what I would have said, probably something about progressive theology or politics or gender, like, I don't know, but not hurry. That wouldn't have even been on my list, much less at the top. The longer I've sat with Willard's thesis, the more I agree with it and think he was really on to something. So yeah, the book is basically a manifesto for a different metrics for success, a manifesto for a slower, simpler life that's built around abiding and built really around prioritizing becoming a person of love and joy and peace and some very practical steps to move in that direction. That's it. Oh, so great. Really good. That invitation that Jesus has he's extended to us to all of us you know in, in yeah. the church or out of the church you know of like of an other way of life yes um, and it's so good it's so refreshing so yeah well thanks so much for being with us john mark yeah uh, thanks for having me on guys and mostly it was just i did this honestly just to meet you guys yeah. so it was nice to put a face with the name i hope we see each other at a pastor's gathering or something soon i'll look for you in the room and so grateful for the work you guys are doing in uh, North Portland. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we hope to meet with you soon. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for having you on. We'll, uh, we'll give away a copy of your book uh, when, whenever this comes out. So. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, great. that should be great. Uh, well, uh, for the Unsuccess Podcast, I'm David. And I'm Josh. And we'll see you next time.